Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. This podcast contains frank discussions about the body, sexuality, and occasionally uses swear words, which may not be appropriate for people under the age of 18. This podcast also uses facts, statistics, and mathematics, which may not be appropriate for liberal arts majors. And this podcast relies on science and reality, which may not be appropriate for evangelicals. Welcome to Fat Chicks on Top. You're here with your host today. I'm Auntie Vice. And today we have a really interesting guest. Their name is Lori Sweetman. They were a teacher in, in K-12, and now they're a life coach focusing on LGBTQ, polyamorous, and kinky folks, and focusing on, on how you become empowered in those areas and, and embrace those identities in yourself. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to have you on. So you went from from teaching into coaching. Got you to do that transition. Politics, <laughs> the school politics. Um, I just my my heart bled for the students who were in the queer community that were having trouble being themselves in school. And then when teachers like myself would try and reach out and help um, with the administration, there was so much hesitation from the administrators. They wanted some, they wanted to help, but they felt like their hands were tied. And so I thought maybe if I helped the parents advocate for their kids coming from the place of the people that the community, that the school serve, that maybe some change could happen and the students can feel safer being themselves in school. And whether that meant transitioning or whether that meant um, stopping people from bullying, any of those things. So when I started off, I started off going back to school so that I could be an expert in that area. So I got my master's in psychology and gender and sexual fluidity. And then I started helping parents. Granted, I advocated for them best I could, but once I had that background, I felt like I was more capable of giving them specifics and training the schools too. So I am helping both the parents and uh, adults that are having issues with structural change as they're trying to come out and then empowering them to advocate for themselves and feel feel good in themselves as themselves. So it's been a few decades since I've been in school, uh, especially grade school or, or middle school, which is the worst. Um, and, uh, you know, bullying, in my, yeah, we had bullying, but like, you know, for folks in my generation, queer kids in my generation, it's like, well, you kind of learned to stand up for yourself and it prepared you for the larger world. Uh, but I didn't have real severe, bro. I wasn't getting beaten up or anything. What are kids going through today? Because my understanding is it's changed. Yeah, um, you have a mixture mm-hmm. of things happening. In some schools, we have um, we do still have violence. We do have kids that are getting hurt in the locker rooms or in the bathrooms. Um, that's usually the middle school to high school age range, and that's also schools that don't have 
specific language in their policies that says bullying um, is not tolerated for gender and sexual reasons. Mm -hmm. They have a more broad base. So there's no real legal avenue that families can take to really secure their child's safety when that's not specifically in the language in the school. In the younger grades, what I was experiencing was a lot of microaggression stuff and shunning type stuff. So I'll give you an example. Um, One time in my classroom, there was this fifth grade boy and we were packing up and he was grabbing his backpack. He was tossing it around. And then all of a sudden he just chucks on the floor and starts punching it, saying, it's so gay. And then it's just punching this backpack while saying that. Now, if you were a kid in that classroom uh, who was starting to feel different or recognizing that um, people around them are all talking about their crushes on Mm -hmm. the opposite gender and a more heteronormative tone to the way they're dressing and everything, and you're feeling a little bit different, and then you see this kid over there punching their backpack saying it's so gay. That's a very negative stigma attached to that word. And so using that word for yourself is just scary. Am I going to get hurt if I say I'm gay? You know, because this kid's punching a backpack saying it's gay. And a lot of things like that, you'll hear kids whispering and push it, uh, keeping other kids at bay that are not quite lined up the way they are. And it's very sad to see that, to see them get depressed about feeling different and not understanding or even having the language Mm -hmm. for that. That's the other thing, the language. How is it with teachers? Um, Because we have those, some teachers are going to be very supportive. Some teachers are gay. Others are less supportive or outright hostile. How is as a teacher in that situation, negotiating those those relationships and trying to stand up for that kid. Does it, I mean, there's been national examples where teachers have been fired or pushed out for standing up for gay oh, yeah. kids, which seems ridiculous to me. Does that still happen, especially in some place like Jersey? <laughs> yeah, it does. You wouldn't see a teacher getting fired specifically for that reason. They would find another reason to push them out. So they would do the roundabout Mm -hmm. way. There are some districts that are really supportive. I'm I'm in Jersey. You have a mixture. But in the section that I am, I'm in the northwestern, more more rural area of Jersey. You have the loudest parent group is the right-wing conservative negative towards um, any kind of change or difference than what they feel it should be their family values, as they put it. So we have teachers that are trying to start a GSA. And if you don't know what that is, it's the Gay-Straight Alliance or the Gender and Sexuality Alliance. Um, And that's just like this group that can be put together by the students with teachers or parents um, to help advocate social justice in the schools for the LGBTQ community. So in the middle or high school, they might be trying to put that together, and then the the, the board of ed will file lawsuits, <laughs> or or they'll um, say no, this can't happen, and we have this big 
butting heads happening in the community or you're they're afraid that the parents are going to call and complain that we're trying to as teachers push some sort of agenda on the tra- changing their child to be something they're not and there's a lot of ignorance surrounding that so we have um, teachers that might try to say something and stand up for it and then you have the administrators scared or if they agree, they're, they're not saying it, they're scared of what the parent community that's very loud and outspoken and negative about change and about LGBTQ topics happening in the classroom, they'll, that they'll re- retaliate and file lawsuits or cause a big ruckus. And it's really hard to stand up for what's right when you don't have others standing there beside you. And the people are all uh, separated, trying to do it on their own, and they're scared to try and do it on their own, but they're also not looking for others that are feeling like they can help, or they're not finding parents in the community that could help, and it doesn't really get anywhere. So I, like, in that one instance with that backpack thing, I went to the counselor, I went to the social worker, and I went to the principal looking for help about educating the kids about why that is a hard, not a good thing to say and do. You can say gay in a positive way, but to be punching your backpack, calling it gay, why is that bad? You know, we should really have an education around this. You know, it's just, it's not being taught at home. It's not being taught in our schools. How else are they supposed to learn? Um, yeah, it wasn't taken over too well. <laughs> that was, that was, uh, I was stirring the pot and, uh, oh my gosh, there were so many, I wish I had written down every little thing that they said because there were a lot of little one-liners that it was that were just like you really that came out of your mouth. Do you realize what you're saying right now? <laughs> um, yeah, that didn't go over too well, so nothing came of it. And then I started keeping track every time I heard um, a teacher trying to organize the class by boy and girl, or um, if the, the counselor was doing a social skills group in my classroom during their recess time and I'm listening in and they're trying to um, do everything all about Christmas, not thinking about other religions, you know, moments like that that we're not aware of that we have these internal biases about to try and like bring up as like a starting point to, hey, maybe we could also include LGBTQ topics in this. Yeah. And you're coming at it both with the 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 perspective of having been in the schools as a teacher and now as somebody who helps parents in power. So let's talk a little bit about some of the current issues going on in our nation because there's a massive attack on trans and <sighs> queer kids. Like, yes, there is trying to make us disappear, trying to you know navigate that language. I mean, teachers in Florida are getting fired for having pictures of their partners on their desk, like. We're, we're at this really kind of hysterical point over queer stuff. Um, so with your understanding of psychology and all of that, is there anything wrong about talking about queer stuffing? I mean, the, the fear is that we're going to be recruiting. Somehow we're recruiting to this <laughs> fabulous lifestyle, and it is fabulous. But um, <laughs> what, what You're reminding me of a meme. <laughs> oh, my gosh. There was, like, there was this meme, like, with... Um, uh, God, I'm going to look it up again. And I'll, I'll go back to you. It had something to do with like, um, 
sprinkling glitter everywhere. It's just like we're like we're not gonna we're not gonna force your child to be something that they're not because if we did, everything would be all happy and glittery everywhere anyway. So what's the big deal? <laughs> but um, no, like okay, I I <laughs> I try and confront the the people who are saying things like that with an example that makes them think. So as children, we see a lot of Disney movies or we read a lot of like happy-go-lucky fairy tale books, right? And in all of them, the little princess is saved by the little prince, all right? Or they're, and the happy ever after ending is the the boy and girl get together and they're happily in love ever after, right? Um, I'm gay and that didn't make me straight. So do you really think that talking about two people that are the same gender falling in love is going to now all of a sudden turn your straight kid gay? If it didn't, you know, I didn't turn gay because uh, uh, gay from watching a TV show. There was no TV shows when I was growing up that had the same gender falling in love. I had no examples of that. And I still turned out very, very flaming gay. Okay. It didn't, didn't do anything for me. You know, watching a boy and a girl kiss only confused me a whole lot for a Mm -hmm. long time and caused all kinds of damage mentally for myself because I didn't have any other example to look at. Now it's a myth. Um, that's a myth that you can be changed. And, um, the site, the psychology around it, uh, that's why conversion therapy doesn't work. Mm-hmm. That's why that's why that's banned in so many states, and why the the American Psychological Association says it's a really bad thing, a really, 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 really bad thing for people. So, no, um, the saying "gay" in school is not a problem. Okay, it's not something that we have to worry about. It's actually going to save lives. Mm-hmm. So the laws that are going around now with uh, like in Florida and around the Southwest and in, unfortunately in my county, there was actually a resolution that was signed by the commissioners saying that they want us, they want to, it was very much a don't say gay bill that they were trying to present to the governor, uh, but they want to remove the new standards, new um, and the new policies around the curriculum of sexuality the health education program they want to remove the ability to use the words transgender lesbian um gay um consent (laughs) oh my gosh they don't want to talk about consent like and for me hearing that it scares the crap out of me for Mm -hmm. the kids that are that are trying to understand what's going on with themselves and how to have a healthy relationship. And now they can't learn about it in school. And we know our families are scared to talk about it at home. They're relying on the school to talk about puberty. So where else are they going to get it? Right. You know, but um, there's nothing to be afraid of, but only, only to be happy about with having the schools promote healthy relationships and understanding yourself. And that's all that is. Mm-hmm. Well, and taking out consent, Jesus, what are we, yeah. what we're now pro date rape? Like, yeah. 
basically they're like let's not let's not talk about that because it's going to tell them to have sex by talking about consent when the reality is the exact opposite they're going to feel empowered mm-hmm. to say what they want to do with their body Which and you know a lot no. of kids a lot of kids would like to say no more than we realize you know there there's uh children that are afraid in their relationships both straight and gay okay mm-hmm. no matter what the relationship is they're afraid that they're going to lose their partner if they say no they don't know that that's that's an okay and healthy thing to do and that it actually would bring them closer intimacy wise if they were able to say what they want whether that's a yes or no and then if it's up to the parent to talk to them uh, sure but that's not happening that's that's just not happening and when we started having sex education surrounding um, condom use, as well as abstinence, as well as the birth control pill, as well as the um, all the other options that we have, that's when we start to have kids not getting pregnant. <laughs> okay. But when we have only the abstinence, only education, and we're bringing um, or we're taking away education totally... That's when we're starting to have unwanted pregnancies that were caused by rape or caused by the uh, not even knowing what sex was that that happened to them. Mm-hmm. It's so sad. It's so sad to have a child like, why is this happening to me? What what just happened? I don't understand why I'm hurting down there. Mm-hmm. And that they didn't even know that they were having that someone had sex with them and that that happens. It's so scary. I wish that um, people would take some time to actually hear the true science behind the curriculum that's being put in. And there is. I mean, there, there's a ton of research saying abstinence only does not work. And like to underscore that the biggest high school chlamydia outbreak was in Texas at an abstinence only college, uh, Catholic high. Like they had like 20% of their kids get chlamydia. That's and saying something. That's, that's a lot <laughs> that's, of it. Right? That's a very, very loud <laughs> screaming like, hey, this is not working for you guys. You know, really? like <laughs> time to listen to the educators that actually went to college to learn how to teach, have been studying the science behind learning, studying the science behind the topics that need to be mm-hmm. learned, then met in a whole group of representatives from all the different counties around the state. And then voted on all that stuff and then had other experts look at it to double check that they were right. But yeah, all the experts were wrong, apparently, according to this very, very small population that's very, very loud about not wanting it to happen because they're scared. Mm-hmm. Well, they're, and, they're scared. And that's the issue is you can't fight that fear with facts in most of the in most cases, yeah. right? It's emotional. So when you're going in either as an advocate or speaking before your county commission or speaking to parents one-on-one who may have a kid in a school where they're getting bullied and stuff, how do you address what they need to do? Because these other folks are coming at it from a point of fear of losing their power or a fear that their kid's going to be a slut, heaven forbid. Um, we're very pro-slut on this show, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm very pro-slut too. Yeah. <laughs> I want to uh, take that word back. <laughs> um, but, you know, um, 
you're dealing with parents who are, who are terrified that their kids are going to grow up and have premarital sex and, and maybe experiment with somebody of the same gender in college. So how do you fight that fear? Because facts are not changing minds. Right. You're right. When I tried to talk facts to my parents about the elections that I was uh, opposite of them on, that totally did not work. <laughs> Absolutely did not. And it doesn't work with my minist- with administrators either when I was trying to advocate in the schools and brought with them statistics and piled up papers in front of them and little notes about the research. It totally didn't do anything. No, so you actually do have to appeal to their emotions. You have to my the steps I tell people and I, I take is first to acknowledge what they're feeling so that they feel heard. So they don't feel talked over and pushed into something, but that they actually are acknowledged in where their worries are coming from and that that I've heard that this is their concern around the topic that I'm trying to help them with, right? Or advocate for somebody else on. And then I try and help them empathize with the situation of the other person. So appealing to the emotions first is usually the approach that works the best. And then we're able to have a dialogue of some kind around the solution. So we're not actually saying you're wrong because of these facts, but we are in a roundabout way, (laughs) you know, a very, very roundabout way. We're actually moving into the solutions and then we're imagining like, what would the worst case scenario be if this was to happen? Oh, wait, there's no worst case scenario. You're right. There isn't. So we should do this. Yeah. So then getting them to see the solution, why that's a good solution through the act of approaching with our emotions and envisioning what would happen if, you know, and having a conversation around that, that tends to change the mind a little bit or or approaching it from a more open perspective. Once they're open to this new idea and they feel a little bit more like they're in control of this new idea, that's when they're a little bit easier going to talk to about it. You know, in your practice, you're seeing people who went through school districts where they didn't see their sexuality or their gender or their relationships modeled, right? We're we're yeah. so far away from having a conversation about, hey, you can have healthy non-monogamy. Like oh my gosh, right. Yes. Yeah. And let alone, hey, you can you can be gay and happy and it doesn't have to end up in tragedy. Um so when people are coming to you, what are the, you know, who haven't had these things modeled in school, what's the impact on, on personal development at that point? If we haven't seen it around us, right, but we've all of a sudden started noticing something going on. A lot of the times I've noticed that when that's happened, people have already started Googling. So they've already kind of like started to find somebody else that's feeling something like this. Um, But the next step then for their, their identity development is to start to feel positive emotions towards themselves about these feelings. And then exploring where it has been positive around them. So getting to that healthy self-esteem point that the feelings that I'm having are okay, they're natural, and other people feel this too, maybe through a support group or through um, seeing a movie or a video or reading a book about it or talking to a coach about it, someone who's been there like me. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, 
that helps validate those feelings. So we actually have to start doing the work that should have happened when they were young, but unfortunately didn't. Yeah. So getting to the point of finding our values and noticing that our values are not incongruent to our feelings and our desires, that's a journey that that does take some validation from outside people that does take uh, some talking about talking through and then doing mindset work where we start to feel good about those feelings and have a voice about those feelings and then work on coming out so that we can feel empowered and that we can live as we are happy in these feelings that we have. And yeah, non-monogamy and kink and BDSM and LGBTQ community that's the one thing that they all have in common. We weren't able to see representations of ourselves and our desires when we were younger. And it's, well, luckily the, the younger community now is starting to have a little bit of representation in the media. So that hopefully will help them a little bit. But um, the people that are in my generation in the thirties and their twenties and the uh, not older than than my <laughs> my hitting 40 now in age going up, right? Yeah, we unfortunately didn't have that when we were younger. So there's a lot of that backtracking that has to be done. Yeah. And a lot of people carry sexual shame around this. Like, yes. Especially if you're raised in, you know, a con- with conservative parents or in a conservative religion that you're not supposed to feel like this. What's you know psychologically? What does carrying that sexual shame do to somebody and to their relationships? Unfortunately, that lowers your self-esteem, and it, it could bring on some serious depression and anxiety surrounding it. It also can cause people to try and live un- inauthentically, trying to reach this idea that they have in their head of perfection, but never getting there. And so they're never getting there because that's not them. Mm-hmm. That's just that's just not who they are. And you can't be someone that you're not. It's impossible. I've tried. <laughs> Doesn't work. <laughs> and it sounds like you've been there too, from what I've read. So like we both know you it's impossible. You're trying if you're feeling shame around your gender and your sexuality. And you're trying to reach maybe what your parents wanted you to be, you know, and you're never getting there. You're going to get very sad and very depressed. And and I'm so sorry for that. But I'm Mm -hmm. here to tell you that everything that you want to be, you can. It's very possible. It's not just in a dream. You don't have to wait to be reincarnated into another life to be yourself. You can be everything that you want right now. I went through it. It stunk at first because, uh, yeah, the shame is real and it hurts to never be able to attain what other people want you to be. But when I let go of that and I felt proud of myself for who I was and I went towards what I wanted, it was such a good feeling. And I actually have this sign up um, in my hallway um, that says, this is life this is real (laughs) because it really like, it feels like you're walking through a daydream when you start to live authentically and you haven't been, and you've been living in that shame. And I hope that people will, will hear that and try and take that first step, that baby step, whatever that might be towards feeling more like themselves instead of trying to live for somebody else. 
and letting go of that shame and embracing themselves of who they are because you are beautiful and you are perfect and there's nobody else can tell you otherwise. So you bring up, you've been through this, what's your coming out story? Like, how did you come oh, into God. being who you are? <laughs> it's a big story. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. I always, uh, of course, looking back, hindsight is twenty twenty, right? So like, I've always um, had some sort of an inkling that I really was attracted to women. I remember in uh, looking back that there was um, in kindergarten, because yes, people, you can be queer at the uh, in kindergarten, okay? Um, yeah, looking back in kindergarten, I used to ask to go to the bathroom with this one girl in class. And I never said a word to her. She wasn't my friend at all. <laughs> I was like, I want this girl to come with me to the bathroom. And I'd go to the bathroom and I'd walk back and I'd be like eyeing her out of the corner of my eye, like following her down the hallway and stuff. And nope, never had a clue that that was a crush. <laughs> Not mm-hmm. a clue. Um, so like at some point after, uh, in college and after college, those feelings became more apparent to me. And I, but I was already engaged to a guy and my mom and my dad were so proud of me for being like in this relationship and, and my religion was really pushing that, you know, heteronormativity was the right way to go for God. And I wanted babies and I thought I wanted that white picket fence with that dog and that house and that special career that allows me to watch my kids at home all the time. I thought that was exactly what I wanted because that was the good life that I was taught. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I went through uh, 10, 10 years in that marriage and seven years dating that guy before I was finally like, I, uh, like talking with him about these these movies that we were watching where there's was really hot girl on girl sex scenes. And, you know, like, he's like, you know, I've caught you checking out girls in the shop. Right. And stuff. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm not checking out anybody's ass in the shop. Right. And then lo and behold, I really was. And I didn't even notice that I was staring at these women. <laughs> I was just like thinking briefly, like, Oh wow, she's cute. And like thinking everybody thought that that was like, they noticed that the same gender could be cute. And there were also like gender things that would be coming up that I wasn't really aware of were a problem for me too. Like I was very anti certain roles in my relationship and, and I didn't express them. So they came up very negatively in the relationship. I would just have like this underlying wave of disdainment towards mm-hmm. my spouse, you know, and, and very, very uncomfortable in certain clothes and very, very uncomfortable with my body in certain ways. And I really didn't, didn't know what that all meant. But once I started exploring my sexuality with his permission in an open relationship, we tried opening it up. We went about it very badly. I don't recommend the one penis policy. It's terrible. I don't recommend going about it for that reason, like that you want to explore something and just not not saying that even to your spouse. Like there's a whole lot of things I don't recommend you do that I got from that experience. But um, it was eye-opening for me at the same time. So we wound up 
trying out threesomes. We wound up trying out kink. We wound up trying out all kinds of things sexually in our relationship. And then I tried dating independently, being more on the poly side Mm -hmm. of things. So we we were like, well, I kind of want this to not just be about sex. I want to see what this is like in a relationship. He was like, you know, I kind of do too. And so we tried that out. And I had no idea that I could love more than one person. I didn't think that that was possible in like the very monogamous way that I was brought up. And I didn't realize that I can love women in the way that I did, that I didn't ever feel with any of the male relationships that I had. Mm -hmm. I had that sexual awakening in the coming out process was kind of like going through puberty all over again. It was, it was very much an adolescence (laughs) for me. It was like so quick, so hot, just had to have it all the time. And noticing those feelings about myself and being more aware of things and then doing a lot of mindset work, a lot of self-esteem work. I discovered that I was walking through life for other people and that I really was not happy in that relationship. And I really, really was not happy walking through life as purely what society sees as femininity only. I just, I could not handle that gender role. I could not handle um, what my parents had hoped for me and my religion had hoped for me. And we wound up having a very difficult divorce, but we did it. We got through it. The kids are better for it. We are better for it. And we now have loves in our lives that were actually meant for us. Mm-hmm. And that was the beautiful outcome of that. I'm now married and I married a woman and I came out as gender fluid. I really like being able to live my life um, on that spectrum, going back and forth in those gender roles and just removing the gender roles that time too. And living my life authentically and coming to the realities before me, it also opened up other doors. And this is where like life coaching um, really helps out a lot is that when you're going through this identity change, you also notice other areas of your life that you were kind of walking in a fog through too. And I'm now helping advocate and helping with mental health and helping with parents and their children. And it's such, so much more fulfilling for me than what I was doing before, you know, and how I was living life before. So that's the brief. (laughs) That's the, the gist of my coming into my own. <laughs> so I wanted to bring up a couple of things you touched on. You know, you were, you were doing a lot of this because your parents and your church, this, was, oh, this yeah. was kind of what you were expected to do. How did coming out to them go? Bad. Bad? Really bad. Except for my dad, which I was shocked by because he's the more Roman Catholic mm-hmm. that was from the old school version. Then, and my mom had no real religious upbringing. 
And so I was raised in the Roman Catholic Church and went through all those all those steps that you have to go through to become a, a full Catholic. And all the signs up in the entryway are all like, why, why is porn bad? Why getting married to a gay is not for you? And like all those abortion, yay, no, <laughs> you know, like all, all those signs up that are really not where my values are, where we're flooding the entryway. And my dad was like the embodiment of that. Yet my dad stood up for me which was beautiful. And my mom practically disowned me, which was awful. She said so many, so many bigoted things um, and told me not to talk to my family, told me not to, uh, like not to be at Christmas with my, my person, not to, <laughs> um, she, well, she, <laughs> when she would come over to see the, her grandkids, she wouldn't, look at me and she wouldn't look at my spouse. And so I had to do a lot of boundary work with her. Um, she was very difficult and so was work coming out at work. There was maybe one or two people when I was working in the school that were like, this is so good for you. I'm so happy for you. And a whole lot of people that didn't talk to me. And there was a whole lot of, um, friends that were supportive. And then there was a couple that I thought were like my sister's kind of friends that stopped talking to me. And some of them stopped talking to me because of the polyamory part. And then some of them stopped talking to me because I was coming out as lesbian or gender fluid. And my mom was the hardest of it all. Me, the one thing that a parent-child attachment relationship really has is that you always want to please your parent. You just, there's just something underlying biological in you where you're like, yeah, I need to please mama. That's <laughs> my mommy. <laughs> um, mom's Mom wiped my butt when I was a baby. Mom gave me bottles. I got to make mommy happy. But Sometimes you can't. When you're an adult, you just you just can't. And coming to terms with the kind of relationship that I was had to have with her versus wanted to have with her was a journey. And now, a year later, because um, yes, I have only came out a year ago. No, wow, time flew. <laughs> I came out. <laughs> came out in uh, 2019 to some people, but in 2020 is when I really came out. So mm, yeah, longer than that. Yeah, but it was only really this this past fall. So we're talking like 2021 ish when my mom started looking at my my now spouse, and um, kind of having some kind of a conversation with me. And she only really did that because I cut off contact with her I, and I stopped her from seeing the grandchildren. I gave her what my rules were for respect. Like, you don't have to, mom, um, want to live the life I do. That's okay. You don't have to be gay because <laughs> I'm gay. <laughs> you know, like you don't have to, you don't have to approve. I'm not asking for your approval. Mm-hmm. I'm asking for your respect. And I said in a very loud, aggressive 
boundary setting way and followed through. And then a year later, she started talking. So that was my experience. It's not everybody's journey, but that was, that was my experience with the actual saying it to people, you know, moms. <laughs> yeah, no, that sounds really rough. You mentioned you tried initially in your marriage, you tried opening it up to non-monogamy and then into polyamory and that your, your husband at the time was pretty supportive of that. How did those initial conversations go? Because especially coming up in the Roman Catholic church, the idea of, Hey, let's have sex with more than one person is really not embraced. Uh, to put it mildly. Yeah, yeah. Like, how did you bring that up to, to your husband at the time? Um, over a couple of years of talking to each other. So that particular relationship was very difficult with sexuality in general. So I would catch, I would, I had that stigma around porn as a negative thing when I was, um, in that relationship with him. And, um, he had the stigma of anything in the bedroom that's not very vanilla is not really what you do in a marriage and that he had to be the one that was initiating. I couldn't initiate kind of a relationship. Um, I had to be very subservient to him and I'm very opposite of that. (laughs) (laughs) That was, that was very oppressive to begin with. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and so the conversations tended to start with, with, um, things that we saw in movies and so, like, if we were, it wasn't porn movies because um, I didn't like that back then, but he was very into that back then privately. And so it started off with just general TVMA <laughs> sex scenes. And when I started trying to bring up fantasies, I got would get shut down, but he was okay bringing up fantasies. I would listen. So he started the conversations around fantasies. And then a few years later, it kind of evolved into, I wonder what it would be like to have a threesome. Maybe we should do that someday. And then it evolved into, um, well, what would happen if, how would we go about that? So it was years of talking about just like that aspect. And changing minds, like I had mentioned before, is not easy. So appealing to his curiosities helped him be interested in hearing my curiosities. So for people that are like interested in bringing up something in the bedroom that is just kind of taboo and you're worried about your spouse, I would first start there for me, for my experience anyways, like slowly bring up things that you see in in something in society that you're watching together and find out what their interests are and then be like, I have some ideas too. What do you think of this? You know, when they have warmed up to it. Um, when, when we finally were like, are we really on the same page with this? We really, then it, then all of a sudden we had that jealousy gut reaction of like, Oh, hold on. <laughs> I'm going to lose you. I'm going to lose you. I'm going to lose you. And it was just this big, like, but you can't do this. And there was all those, all these rules. You can't do that. And you can't do this. And then we took a backtrack. But then we brought it back up. And so it was this like roller coaster of back and forth for a bit um, before we finally like found some some way of like taking our dipping our toe in in the journey together. Um, 
that was that those first couple of steps into it were really hard with battling back and forth the shame and the stigma around all of that and jealousy. But uh, we worked through it, sometimes not in the most healthy way. <laughs> and we, I learned a lot from it. You know, so I guess those initial conversations were very scary, but very, very, very much slow warming up over years. Yeah. Well, and sounds like very necessary for both of you because you both have found. Oh, people. very. Yeah. So with your your relationship and the outcome of that that first marriage, that's what a lot of people fear when it comes to opening up a relationship. Like I'm going to lose my partner. Right. Doesn't always happen. Lots of people have happy, non-monogamous relationships, been with their partners 20, 30 years. But that is yes. a, that's a huge fear is in doing this, they're going to find somebody better than me. Right. And I, I'm yeah. going to lose them to somebody for some reason. Um, what would you say to those folks? <sighs> that's a healthy, natural feeling jealousy. That all of our feelings are signals that there's some mindset work that could be done and that there's some communication work that needs to be done. But our feelings are usually like little flags that are popping up that we have some work we need to do. Not that it's a need to stop. So the initial feeling of jealousy is, is usually something that self-esteem wise, we might need to work on and that we need to communicate with our spouse about what desire or feeling or thing that we're worried about is happening so that we can settle down that feeling that's happening. There's just some communication work and it's hard work at first, but once, once you've gotten into their hands, uh, handful of times practicing doing that, it can come a lot easier. And so you won't, you will always have that feeling, but it won't always be such a loud fight or flight kind of reaction to it. The healthier the communication between two people, the better the chance that your jealousy can easily subside or the fear of losing the partner or the, the anxiety around what's going to, what the reaction is going to be, it will start to subside. So with relationship couple work, whether that's more than one dynamic we're trying to work on or just between two people, there's just a lot of inner work and then communication work that has to go into it. That's all. It's not that it's not possible. For me, with my ex-husband, it was a mismatch of sexuality. <laughs> so that just wasn't going to work no matter what, but we're, we're friendly now together. Mm -hmm. Like he's still, he's, he has a different role in my life, but he's still in my life. And that, and if I didn't work on that communication after all the feelings subsided, especially like continuing to work on the communication with him. Yeah. It could have been a whole lot of a different story, but just because my relationship with my ex-husband happened the way it did doesn't mean that your relationship will happen that way too. 
And my relationship with my current spouse and any other partners we we may or may not bring into the bedroom, it's a very healthy back and forth, but we still get those jealous feelings. We still get worried and anxious about bringing stuff up, but we don't stop that from allowing ourselves to express to each other desires or things we want to do and working through that and and facing that instead of letting it control us also empowers us. It gives us like excitement and to share and excitement to try something new, you know? Would you say that's kind of like some things that you've experienced with communication and jealousy? And And, and the fact that the first time through you do it wrong. Like I've made made so many mistakes. Yeah. And I still do like, yeah, it's a vast, vast learning curve here. Um, (laughs) Yes. And every partner is different when it comes to what they need for good communication. Yeah. Our communication styles, figuring that out. That's another big part of that journey of like, how do I let my spouse know I have this fetish or I have this desire to be with another person and in or out of bed with them? You know, like I could see and I have felt and I can walk in their shoes and understand like that is a real concern, real feeling, but it doesn't have to stop you. Well, and letting it stop you, you may just be covering up other issues. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that once you were able to come out and be much more authentic in the realm of relationship styles and sexuality, that you noticed other parts of your life change. What were those? Yeah. Oh, well, I noticed that I didn't want to go by Mrs. or Miss. I prefer Mix. Um, I did not. I always want to be called she or her, that I prefer they and them, and sometimes even like the other ones, he and him and she and her. Um, I noticed that I was unhappy uh, in my role, in my job, and having to wear, wear clothes that were expected of me from my sex assigned at birth and having to... Um, <sighs> Not being able to help children the way I wanted to and advocate for them the way I wanted to, really having my hands tied felt very oppressive to me there. And it kind of re-triggered a lot of the, the feelings that I had from before. So I wanted to have more, more of a voice in everything that was going on in my life and have more control over the way I lived. And I realized that I didn't want a big house like my mom wanted for me. And I didn't care if I had made thousands and thousands and hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, like my mom wanted me to. And my dad were hoping that I would be supported by a guy in my life, you know? And I thought I wanted to be a a mom that was home a lot with the children and really focus on the children. Yes, I really love being involved in my kids' lives. And I have my hands involved in their lives a lot. But I also really love educating myself and moving up in my my career and having my career be something that I am in charge of and I can control how far I go with it. Religion. Yeah. Did not like the Catholic religion. (laughs) Um, I'm more spiritual, you know, I'm, I 
don't necessarily believe that there is a God, but that there is something in all of us that's God-like. You know, I just, I thought I wanted to take my art and make a career of that. Um, I, and I did for a little while sell my artwork and I did for a little while have it in galleries, but it wasn't the uh, fulfillment that I had thought I was going to feel when I did that because it wasn't authentic to me. Mm-hmm. I like making my artwork for myself, but not having to go through the business aspects of making art. So that was a huge awareness for me right there because I loved art going through high school and college and all that stuff. And I really thought that that was my passion, but that is more of uh, a self-healing inner work for me creating, not so much my career passion. And I didn't think that I was going to be able to help people. I didn't think I was worthy and that I could. And finding out that I have the values and the skill set and the desire and that that is actually what fuels me and that that I can do it and that that sense of empowerment around my my life, that right there was a huge awakening for me. Short hair. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the minute that I cut my hair was like a, a huge aha moment. When I was growing up, I was told that I would look like a lesbian if I had short hair. Well, look at me now. <laughs> You know, it fits now. You want to look like a lesbian. (laughs) That's cute. Yeah. (laughs) So if people want to contact you for coaching, support, all of that good stuff, plug all the things. All the things. Yay. Okay. You can go to my website, includelgbtq.com. You can email me, coachlaurie at includelgbtq.com. And you can find me on Facebook and on sort of on Twitter. I'm, I'm very uh, back and forth on that. Oh, Instagram a little bit. <laughs> I'm not the greatest at social media, so maybe just email me. <laughs> yes, but please reach out. I would love to help. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time and sharing your story. And listeners will have all of those links up in the the show notes if you want to reach out to Lori. (laughs) Thank you so much. This was fun. And now, a moment of gratitude. My new life that it's actually real, that this life is, <laughs> this life that I love is actually happening. I I am so grateful for all of those experiences getting me to this point that I am able to help people, that I have this beautiful wife and life with her and the experiences that I get to have with her, that they're real, that they're not just in my dream and that my children are thriving now after all that stuff we went through. I'm so grateful for that. (laughs) 
Hi, this is Auntie Bice from Fat Chicks on Top. I want to let you know that Fat Chicks has a new line of merchandise so you can show your love. You can go to AuntieBice.com backslash shop for all things Fat Chicks. My books are there as well. And if you use code prep for Folsom, capitalizing each letter, you will get $7 off the 30 Days of Kiki Self-Discovery digital book. listening to this episode of Fat Chicks on Top. Please like, subscribe, and review our podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. If we like your review, we may even read it online. This has been an Auntie Vice production. Producer and host, Rebecca Blanton. Audio production by Sharon Smith. Music by David Manga. And more music by Sharon Smith. For more information about Fat Chicks on Top, please visit our website for all things Fat Chicks at fatchicksontop.com.